Hello and welcome everyone to another InventRight live Q&A. My name is Andrew Krauss. I'm the co-founder. I co-founded InventRight with Stephen Key over 20 years ago. And we've been coaching and mentoring inventors ever since. Uh, since the uh, COVID pandemic started, um, we started doing these uh, live Monday Q&As and we haven't stopped. So uh, feedback I've got is you guys really enjoy these. Um, so you can check out our YouTube show, all our YouTube shows. And you can also check out prior Q&As I've done as well. Um, it's kind of fun being able to attend live because you can ask me questions. Um, and I'm just going to have fun and jump in. I've been talking for about about the last three hours straight. I had a bunch of appointments today. It's you know Monday after a holiday. Um, but I have to say, whenever I get on with you guys, you guys really energize me. You ask great questions. You're always very appreciative of the time that I put in on these Monday chats. And I really appreciate you guys. And I know this is really important to you guys. So uh, thank you for all your kind words. Um, I see Dana there, one of our students. Hi, Dana. Um, so if you have a handle, sometimes in, on YouTube they have these weird handles. Um, so at the beginning of your question, if you type your, your first name, that would be great. If not, I'll just uh, read your handle. Um, either way works for me. So as long as we got enough questions, uh, we're, as long as most of you aren't on holiday or what have you, or extended holiday, uh, we should have enough questions for now. We always do. Sometimes I worry. There's not a lot of people in here at the beginning, and then it grows. Everybody's Sometimes people are like 10 minutes late or so. Anyway, so let's let's jump in. And occasionally, I'm like I said, I've been talking for the last three hours, so I might take a sip of water here or there. Um, we just announced the the contest winners. So we had, um, well, announce it on here. Let's see. Um, Tyler Ray, he's 16, and he won the one-on-one -on -one coaching. Uh, our one-on-one -on -one coaching program. I talked, to, I talked to all five of these people this morning, too. I've been pretty busy. And then we had Serena Cooper and Charles Harmon uh, won the Academy package. And then um, Sean won the Design Studio package, and Judy won the Smart IP package. So I, I enjoyed talking to all five of you this morning. Quite a few of you were viewers of the show, and um, there's over, like, $5,000 worth of, of stuff. Um, so I'm really looking forward to, and all our crew is looking forward to helping you guys. We had everybody in the company uh, review the video. So it was a company-wide thing and, and picking everybody. So that was great. If you didn't get chosen, we had a huge number of entrants. So don't feel bad at all about that. We had a, lo had a lot of competition there. All right. So uh, JCH Express, Andrew, this is a really deep question, man. Uh, do you think human innovation may eventually result in the destruction of human beings in terms of jobs, work, or do you think human innovation only improves the well-being of people? Wow, that's deep, man. Uh, <laughs> um, both, I guess. I think sometimes uh, innovation, I mean, you can make the argument that innovation with, with weapons of mass destruction and things uh, was bad. Um, and you could make the argument that uh, medical innovations or other innovations that makes our lives easier or save our lives or different things is good. So uh, I would say it's good and bad. I would say most people just normally think of innovation as good, right? But you're making me think about it and answer your question. It's not always good. Um, sometimes innovations hurt people or it looks like a good thing, um, but it turns out not to be. Um, sometimes I wonder about social media. I think we all do these days. If it's a good or a bad thing. It seems like on the surface it's just great, but it doesn't seem to always be the case. So thank you, uh, JCH Express. That was a fun question. Very philosophical. Uh, hi, Andrew. Hope all is well. This is from Jason. What can you say is the one thing your students usually forget to put in their cell sheet or in other words, what is a good addition to add on the sell sheet? Well, I'll go with the latter rather than the former because our students don't forget anything in their sell sheets because they got a coach guiding them along. So they don't forget. But, you know, what I'll say is what, what other people forget to put in their sell sheet. Um, 
it's not it's not the end of it's sometimes it's that they put too much so you know sometimes people hear oh there's like a big benefit statement then some bullet points and a picture or two contact information at the bottom but they overdo it with the bullet points it's not three bullet points or even five bullet points but it's like 10 bullet points well there's not bullet points anymore it's just a big old long ass paragraph that nobody wants to read through so that's one mistake people make um what you're asking specifically, what do people forget? I think most of the time it's not what people forget. People add too much, um, it, not not enough. So so it's usually they forget to remove all the garbage and get straight into the point because they want the the marketing manager to come and you know everything about it. And really, you, what you're truly selling is just the benefit. Um, and you're just trying to get them to reach back out to you. I, I would say call you, but they rarely call. They almost always send an email. Even though your phone number might be in there, they almost never call. That's always an email, just to give you guys a heads up there. Um, what is good to add to the sell sheet? I don't know. I'll just tell you what should be in a sell sheet. Big benefit statement, a few bullet points. Um, usually one big picture, not four equal size pictures. That's terrible. So one big picture, maybe there's a smaller picture if necessary. Sometimes there's a storyboard. It's like a series. Um, sometimes there's a picture, but there's a caption underneath it. So one of the phrases that I kind of coined, I'm sure somebody has before me, but a, a picture is worth a thousand words, but a picture with a caption is worth 10,000 words because you might not completely get what the picture is, but then you look down at the, the caption and you're like, oh, okay, I get it. And a caption could be just, glancing at the bullet points or glancing at the benefit statement, or it could be something below the picture. But so a picture with a captions were 10,000 words because you don't quite get the picture. You don't look at the caption. You don't quite get the caption. You look at the picture, but the combination between the two, you just get it. And so it doesn't have to be a caption below the picture necessarily, although sometimes it would and a storyboard usually is, you know, it's like a two or three or four pictures and you have, says something below each one, or maybe it doesn't. Maybe the picture just does it. Maybe the caption is essentially the big benefit at the top. Like you look at the big benefit statement and then you're looking at the, uh, sorry, I got all these notifications going here distracting me, I just turned them off. Um, and then you're looking at the picture and you're like, oh. So you're like not even reading the bullet points, you're just kind of glancing at the picture, will gravitate towards, usually gravitate towards the upper left-hand corner and go over. So um, you'll look at the benefit statement. You're like, oh, that's interesting. Oh, okay. oh, oh, I get it. You look at the picture. Done. So they need to get it in six to ten seconds. Last session, I talked about the laptop test. Put your cell sheet on a laptop. Spin it around with somebody that you've never shown it to before. And look at their face. Don't say a damn thing. They can ask you questions. You don't say anything. Look if they're confused. Listen to the questions they ask. If they're asking too many questions and they're not getting it, you know it's not good enough. So that's, that's free, doesn't cost you anything to do that. And the people you show it to don't need to be um, marketing professionals. So that's a good way to know if you have a good sell sheet. Um, JH says, hey Andrew, just wondering if you know of any good inventing festivals or events one might attend to connect for more ideas and information on inventing, of course, post COVID. Uh, no, for the most part, no. Um, when you go to an event, it should be, when you go to a trade show, it should be the industry of your invention. I'm not big on invention trade shows. Um, if you just, if you go there because they have some good speakers or good education, that's fine. That's great. I highly recommend that. Steve and I spoke at the Michigan Inventors Con Conference, which was a coalition of five or six um, different inventor groups or more. And I spoke at other, uh, conferences like that, um, and that's fine, but don't you don't go there to sell your idea, which isn't what you were saying, JH, I don't think. Um, but you go, if you have a bicycle product, you go to Interbike Expo, which is in Las Vegas. That's a bicycle trade show. If you um, want to go, if you have a pet product, you go to Super Zoo in Las Vegas, right, for that trade show. You go to the, if you have a hard, hardware product, you go to the hardware show in Las Vegas. They're all in, all the trade shows are in Las Vegas or Chicago, and a few, very few, like maybe Florida or LA, very few, but mostly Chicago or Las Vegas. 
Um, easy for me, I moved to Henderson, Nevada, which is next to Vegas about 13 years ago from Silicon Valley. Very easy for me to go to trade shows, which is nice, but not always easy for you guys. Um, you, we have whole trainings um, for our students about working a trade show when you're licensing. It, it can be kind of expensive. You got the flight, you got, um, you got, you know, food, you got the hotel, you got food, you got all those expenses. So you should only go out if you already know who you're going to visit, and then you can wander around and look for extras. But you already know which boost you're going to hit. You have to be very organized about it. It can be fantastic, but, you know, it was, we've been around 20 years, so we've kind of ebbed and flowed with the advice we give. And there was a time where we said, you, you don't need trade shows. You can go directly to companies. We still believe that. Then there was a time where we were like, we're kind of positive on doing trade shows for people that could afford it in addition to reaching directly out to companies because you can meet a lot of companies in the same day. Now, you have to keep in mind, they're there to sell, not to buy. So they have paid a lot of money for this booth. They have retailers visiting their booth because they want to get orders, right? So that they can they can sell stuff to people that have stores. So th they're not there for you. You're not supposed to ramble. You're not supposed to take up tons of time. But, you know, you kind of pay attention to the booth. You see, oh, there's not much of a crowd now. You go in and you ask them if they're open to outside ideas. And the important thing is that you get their card. Never just give your card because they're going to lose it. They get like a thousand cards. It means nothing. But if you get their card and you follow up with them, Quite often, you're not even showing it to them at that time. You're just asking if they're open to ideas, and then you let them know you're going to send the sell sheet. Sometimes you're going to show them your sell sheet. Um, I would not bring the product and show it. You never know who's looking. But um, so, JH, trade shows can be very beneficial. Go to the trade show in the industry or invention. If you have a local inventors group trade show or a local inventor group show, and they have great speakers that will educate you about things, great. But if when they have like a bunch of booths, if you want to do that and you have a uh, patent, you know, or patent pending status, you could do it just as experience, but it's not really an experience because at a trade show when you're licensing, you're walking the show. You have no booth. They have booths. And that way you just pay the interest fee of a hundred bucks for quite often it's free at a lot of shows. Some shows you can't get into really hard to get into. Um, but if it's just an inventors group that's organized it, it's just a bunch of inventors looking at other inventors stuff. You can make the argument that it's good to practice, to give your pitch and stuff. Okay. But when you're licensing, you usually don't want to make that public disclosure. So I think that's a little, a little risky. So no invention trade shows or festivals. You'd think there would be. Um, there was one by an invention promotion company. Um, one of these companies, I can't speak specifically to it because I never mentioned names of companies, especially ones that I don't like. Um, but that is no longer... I don't know an invention trade show that I would recommend you attend. The Michigan Inventors Conference was great because um, there was a bunch of great speakers there. And if your local inventors group's having a little conference, a little bit more than just the regular Saturday meeting, I highly encourage you to do that. Steve and I have another group called Inventor Groups of America that we just put our money into to help support inventor group leaders and independent inventors. And so we're very supportive of inventor groups, but that's not the way you license your product. Um, so as a long answer, kind of a little bit off from your question, but I think everybody benefited from the answer. So thank you, JH. Appreciate it. Uh, let's see. Brandon said, I'm trying to get a quote to build my product. It deals with small portable power banks. How can I find out who makes the power banks for my favorite brand I'm trying to sell? Okay, I'm trying to get a quote to build my product in small portable. How can I find out who makes the power banks for my favorite brand I'm trying to sell? I don't know what that means. So I'm assuming I'm assuming when he talks about power banks, I don't know if he's talking about those little battery chargers you can use to charge your phone or your iPad. I'm assuming he's talking about that. Let's just assume he is for the sake of, of all, all of us learning. Um, power banks for my favorite brand. How can I – okay, so he's saying – if let's say that that's what he's talking about, he's saying, okay, I got this favorite brand. I think Archer, is that one of them? I forget. Belkin. They all, there's a bunch of companies that make those. Um, you won't know. They have a factory that they're using. I don't think there's any way of you finding out who the factory is for your favorite brand, nor do I think it's necessary. Um, and 
nor do I think in some cases it would be necessary even for you to get quotes. So Brandon, if you're licensing is what we we're talking about today, we're not, we don't do venturing. We don't do make it and sell it yourself and start your own business. That's not what event rights about. That's not what this live Q and A is about. It's about licensing to a big company. It's their money, their workforce and their distribution. So in that case, you can just look at, let's say there's these power blocks that used to charge your cell phone. You can look at the price range. Are they going from this price to this price for this size to this size? You can observe the products in the marketplace. There's no need for you get you get a quote. Quite often, um, it's a five-time markup. This is a very general thing. But on most product categories, I mean, if, if it's selling for $10, they probably made it for two. Now, you could also, if you wanted to, you could go on Alibaba or someplace like that and look in mass quantities. Like if, you, if I ordered 1,000, that's not mass. That's pretty low. But if I ordered 1,000, this battery pack with 5,400 milliamps, what's my cost? And you're buying from them, right? You're buying from some manufacturer in China or something like that. So you could look at your costing there. But by looking at the other products in the space, you're going to get a good idea of what those products sell for. So I don't know if you really need to get a quote. Um, uh, Sam, when, when designing a sell sheet, should I be designing it specifically for each company as in colors matching their website and other little details? Or should I just make that one that I can send? Yeah, most of the time, you know, you can do that. And Steve and I have both talked about, but I mean, let's say you got 20 companies. Are you going to make 20 sell sheets with 20 companies' colors to get their attention? That's a little over the top. Um, you could if you wanted to, but I don't know if it would be worth, worth the effort. Instead, you might customize something you say at the beginning of the email to show them that you recognize their company and what they do so that they know, oh, this guy knows our product line. Like you might even say, I think this would fit beautifully with your XYZ product line. That only takes you a few sentences to type. To do 20 sell sheets in 20 different colors for each company's color scheme is a little bit overkill. Um, if you wanted to, you could do it. Might get their attention, but if you just write something that is catered to them, very short in the email and then attach your sell sheet, that would probably be a great thing to do. Um, Uh, Debbie says, hi, Andrew, could you explain how Stephen can license his spin formation technology out to so many different companies instead of just one company? Okay. You know, this has been a question over the last 20 years and, and, you know, the spin formation and Stephen's spinning label. So I'm just going to, just in case you guys don't know what we're talking about. So let's pretend this was a container. It could be uh, a bottle of vitamins, okay? It's round, right? So usually on a container, you have a label that sticks to the round container, right? Now, Stephen did that, but his spin label is then another label that's on top that has no sticky on it, and it spins. And then it has a little window on it. So when you spin it, you can see the information on the bottom label, but you still see the information on the top label, except for where the window is, in which you see the information on the bottom label. So that's what a spin label is. That was Stephen's invention, which he's sold that whole patent portfolio quite some time ago. Um, most of the time, I was talking to a student about this just a couple hours ago. Most of the time, you're going to be licensing to one company. But as long as they're not stepping on each other's toes, you can license to multiple companies. You're not going to license to two companies that sell on the exact same shelf at Target. That's not working. That doesn't make any sense to them, right? They have no benefit or advantage over the other company. That doesn't make sense. But maybe there's a high-end version where this company is making a low, low, low price product selling a certain distribution channel. And you want to break it out where you can do a really high-end version to a different company selling different stores and it would not step on their toes. Fine. So distribution, price point, different version of the product. You know, there's a lot of ways you can break that out. But here's the big misperception I talked to the student about this morning. There's this perception, well, if I license to five companies, I'm going to make more money to license to one company. And that's not necessarily true. Usually when you license to one really big company, you know, that's going to be fine. And it's not realistic to license to multiple companies because they would be stepping on each other's toes. But if it's in a different geography or a different distribution channel or a different version of the product where one's not going to hurt the other, fine. Now, with Steven's spin label, because it's on a container and it's round, it's not a product. It's a packaging product. 
So it could go on tons of different products. So it, it went on like liquor and vitamins and all sorts of different stuff. So what he did is he actually licensed it to a label manufacturer that then offered it to all sorts of different companies. So when they package the product, they put the label on. So that it's a very unique product that confuses people. For most of your products, that's not going to apply. Okay, so hopefully I was clear there. And I'm going to drink some water now. Um, but that's a good question, Debbie. A lot of people have been asking that question for 20 years. Um, uh, Debbie also said, which is another good question, is a patent only good for 20 years? And then anyone can use your idea. A patent is good for 20 years, but it doesn't mean anyone can use your idea. First, so first off, if you do a licensing deal and you don't make the uh, the licensing deal dependent on the patent, you can get royalties past the 20 years. Now, let's be realistic, guys. How many products sell more than 20 years? Okay, but if it did, you could get royalties past the 20 years because the licensing contract says they need to pay you regardless of patents. If they sell the product, they need to pay you. Now, another way you can extend it past 20 years is think about the next version, the next iteration, expand the product line. And that's another way to keep it going. Like, you know, maybe that patent, maybe they did. They said, no, in the contract, we'll only pay you, you know, if it's covered by that patent. But now you got this new version and you got a new patent and now you can continue it on. So Stephen actually did that with his spin label with where he, he was able to continue to get royalties on things that had expired. Um, and so you, you definitely can do that. So there's a couple different tricks. Uh, Ida said, good evening. Well, good evening, Ida. Um, let's see. Don't know. Uh, Melissa said, you had a question and an answer. I'd be happy to get to it. Trying to get my product price. Should I send it to a manufacturer to price on so many units and break it down? It is there a, I'm just reading it like you wrote it, break it down. It is there a simple method to figure out in my own. Okay. Um, so yeah, look at similar products. You don't, when you're licensing, you, you can look at similar products and go, well, if they can make that for 1995 and that for 29, I know it can be done and I'm just changing this. So the vast majority of the time, you can look at similar things and make assumptions that it can be made and that it can be made at a reasonable price that you think people will pay. So you don't have to go out and get quotes to get it mass manufactured. And contract manufacturers will quite often not give you, they know you're an independent inventor. Unless you say you're working with the manufacturer, I need a quote for 20,000 units, 50,000 units, 5,000 units, whatever it is. And they won't take you seriously, won't give you a reasonable quote. Now, you can still use contract manufacturers to go, can this be made? But they kind of kind of look at you and figure out if you're somebody they want to spend a bunch of time figuring that out for. So um, you quite often you don't need that, Melissa. You know, you just looked at similar products, and my guess is you can figure out if it can be made at a reasonable price. And you might only be 70% sure, but get interest from the company and let, then let them who – contract manufacturers they work with, the, the company that you're going to license it to, take them seriously and they can get real quotes because contract manufacturers probably won't give you real quotes. If you say you're working with the manufacturer and that's one way of maybe it's a little bit of a gray area, a little white lie, whatever you, and, and I need a quote for 10,000 units of this, can you do it? And what would the price be? You can do that. So I'm not saying you would never do that, but the vast majority of the time, you can look at similar products and you're, you're good. And, and just to be clear, we only do licensing here at InventRight. We don't show you how to make the product and sell it yourself. Now, if you're making the product selling yourself, obviously you need quotes. If you're licensing it, quite often you don't. It's just fairly obvious. And if they do have questions, great. They have questions. They won't kick you to the curb because they showed interest in your beautiful sell sheet and the benefit of the product. Oh, you don't have like thorough quotes. Oh, forget it. Don't even call me back again. They don't say that. So if they didn't want to go get those quotes, they could put it back on you. Kind of a red flag. Sometimes it makes sense. I had a student this morning where they could get quotes on part of it, but they didn't do anything with electronics. Pretty really simple electronics. They asked the inventor to actually do it, which is a little less common. But it was. I told him it would be pretty simple to do that and told him how to do it. Um, 
let's see. Uh, Sebastian. Hey, Andrew, Sebastian here. When making a cell sheet, can it be made just by a lackluster drawing? Uh, what's your go-to when making a cell sheet? I'm asking because I don't have many resources. So, um, you know, when, when we first started EventRight, we didn't have a design department. Now, when our students come on board with us, we include a cell sheet and a virtual prototype because it was a hang-up for a lot of people. What we would tell people to do is go to Fiverr. And Fiverr is a website, F-I-V-E-R-R, -R, I think it is, and where people will work pretty cheap. They don't all do everything for five bucks on this 20 or 30 or 50 or whatever. You, but um, And we had so many people getting really frustrated with folks on Fiverr because most of the time they're in other countries and their English wasn't that good, and they weren't getting it. And a lot of times it was because the inventor wasn't relaying it right too, but a lot of times it was the, the designer. So you might want to try Fiverr if you're on a really strict budget. We have a design studio department where we, you can actually purchase cell sheets and virtual prototypes separately. When you're a member, it's included, but you can do them separately. Um, let me get back to that question here. Oh, Sebastian, okay. So your question, Sebastian, is if you have a lackluster drawing, is that okay? Um, like we had a, a Kickerland on. We had Jan, and he is the CEO of Kickerland. They got a lot of fun, K-I-K-K-E-R-L-A-N-D. Really cool guy. Novelty type of stuff. A lot of functional novelty stuff. Um, and he's okay with drawings. I would not recommend that for most companies with most products. You could send him a rough sketch, what have you. Now, he said in particular, he would probably give a lower royalty for that because of that. But he was okay with that. And, you know, with novelty, you might show him, like, here's five new products. Here's three new products. You don't want to make a sell sheet for every one. But if it's like a kitchen gadget or gardening product or automotive product or pretty much any other category besides novelty, I wouldn't do a simple hand sketch. It's You really got to show them the marketing. You, they just don't have the imagination. Um, Kickerland's very creative if you look at their products. So they, they have that imagination. A lot of companies don't. So you could go on to Fiverr and get somebody to do the sell sheet. Maybe even get somebody to do a virtual prototype if you're really limited financially, Sebastian. So that's what I recommend. But unless you're in novelty, I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend rough or crude, crude drawings. I just wouldn't. Um, uh, thank you, Little John. Appreciate the comments. Uh, Gemini, congratulations to all the winners. Great. Uh, Melissa, I answered your question there. Uh, Leonard, uh, hey, Andrew, can you tell us what specific occupational skill sets you feel would benefit a person the most while trying to license products. I don't think you need a particular skill. You need the skill set for licensing. So if you read our book, One Simple Idea, you need to be able to do all the stuff that's in our book, One Simple Idea. Um, so you need to be willing to get on to LinkedIn, use LinkedIn to reach out to marketing managers. You need to not be afraid of picking up the phone and calling folks. Um, and you know we can get you over those you know, things. Um, you need to be able to write a provisional patent, which sounds like, oh God, I can write a patent. I looked at patents on Google. This, it's like another language. Well, a provisional can be written in common English. So anybody can write a provisional patent. I have students that don't have a GED and they're able to write a provisional patent. So anybody can do that. But, you know, first time you do it, it might take you a few extra hours. And the next time you do it, like, I got that down. That's not that hard. Um, you need to basically not be lazy. You need to not realize. You need to realize that the invention is about 10% of it, and the rest of it is about 90% of it. So when I, you have to have a work ethic. So you're asking what skills? A strong work ethic um, is extremely important. And some creative people don't have it. They want to come up with ideas and just like. To, I mean, it's fine. If it's okay if you have 100 ideas, 200 ideas. I've talked to inventors. It's fine. You have to stop. You have to work on this one project to get yourself familiar. And then maybe you start to get good at it. And you work on two or three at once. But you have to be structured 
And you have to set aside that time every week to reach out to those companies. You have to do some internet searching to find the right list of companies and then send them your sell sheet. You have to be a little bit of a marketer to know how to make a good sell sheet. Um, you need to be willing to get a lot of no's. You need to be, I don't see it as a salesperson because you're not really selling because your sell sheet's doing that. But in people that have done some sort of sales, um, they know there's going to get a ton of no's. And the vast majority of what you're going to get is no's. You reach out 25 companies, maybe 23 say no, two show interest, one falls off, you end up doing a deal with one. That's very normal. Sometimes you reach out and you get interest from eight out of 25, but then seven fall off and you end up doing a deal with one. But you got to get used to that and you got to get used to putting yourself out there. So I think being humble, um, but being determined and persistent um, is very important along with all that other stuff I shared. But I, I love that question. Um, I, I think it's a great question. If I didn't lose track of where I was, then I could figure out who asked that question. <laughs> uh, let's see. There you go. L Leonard. Thank you, Leonard. Sorry. Um, I get so caught up in my answer. So it's going to, let's see. Now I lost my space again because things move around. Um, Oh, now I lost my place again. There we go. Uh, Ishan, he was with the power banks earlier. Power banks generally use Samsung batteries and they get uh, components from different factories. They, they just assemble the final product. They don't make it under one roof. You can't get a quote directly. Oh, that was kind of like you were helping them out. Um, yeah, you can just, you could just look at the price of the product divided by five. That's probably around the cost. Um, uh, Ashan also said, please guide me. I want to sell my idea without prototyping. It's a navigation related product. I'm a student and don't have links or money for patents, etc. Well, Ashan, if you have $75 for a provisional patent, you have enough money to go fishing. Um, and you can file a provisional patent yourself. Um, you don't need to prototype your idea quite often. If you're fairly certain it will work, just do a sell sheet and a virtual prototype. Okay. Um, something that, so you can illustrate the benefit of your product. And thank you for helping the other inventor with some information about power banks. Um, let's see. Uh, Jord, the Canadian. Jord, Okay. Do you work with software licensing? I have a patent I'm sitting on that I believe I, I can, that I believe can be healthy and profitable counter to social media. Um, yes, you can license software or web-based stuff. Um, it's harder without a doubt. If you don't have a background in software, I, I don't recommend it. Um, cause like everybody has an iPhone or an iPad or Android or whatever these days. Right. And so everybody has ideas for apps, but, um, the software geeks don't really like it when you're like, well, that's a great idea, Mr. Inventor, but, um, that's going to take six guys in a room to program. So when you're not, don't have a background in software, um, you don't have a, an idea. Is this an app that could be programmed in two days or a year, you know, because it's incredibly complex. So the software geeks, don't really respect um, uh, ideas. Now, if you're a software person and they ask you like, well, what backend database you're using? And you're like, oh, that's And you can talk about it intelligently. Then I don't think there's much difference for a software person licensing a software piece than somebody licensing a dog toy or a medical device or anything else because you can talk intelligently. The software geeks will give you a hard time about not having the information. So probably some of you are thinking like, well, I got a gardening product. I don't know how this hoe ho is made or I don't know how um, this barbecue spatula is made. Well, you could just look at similar products and go, well, I just put a notch in it. And you can't do that with software quite often. So it's a lot harder. So Jord, um, you've, you've got a patent. Patents don't have a lot of value quite often in software. It sounds like it's like a web social media thing. So it's kind of like maybe a business method patent a little bit. There's no such thing as a business method patent, guys, just utility, but that's the way you describe it. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's social media stuff. That's going to be hard. It just is. Um, 
if you're tapping into or just changing what they're already doing, great. If you're asking them to start a whole new Facebook or a whole new Google, no. But if you're like, oh, we can, you can add this to your product and change it and make it a little bit better, okay, that's doable. But if you're asking to start a whole new business, that's more venture vulture capital stuff. That's not licensing stuff. But if you're just going to change it a little bit, um, you know, without starting a whole new model, then it, it definitely can be licensed, Jordan. Uh, oh, this question. Steph, Steph, I don't know if it's Stefan or Stefan. Um, Hi, Andrew. Could we use a PPA to protect a few ideas with only one PPA while shopping them around with the intention of only going forward with a patent for only one of the ideas with a PPA? So first off, if you've got a product and you've got all these product variations of that product, absolutely, you can throw them all in the same PPA and you should. Okay. But if you got a gardening product and then you got a kitchen gadget and then you got an automotive product, to throw those all in the same PPA, I don't know. I need to ask an attorney that. I, 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 that's not a good idea. I've never advised anybody to do that. Um, could you and still reference that PPA? I don't know for sure. It just generally seems like a bad idea. Provisional patents are only 75 bucks. It doesn't seem like it's worth being cheap that way. Um, but I've never specifically asked a patent attorney that, um, so I can't answer for sure. But I would say um, don't do it. Um, and anything we share tonight, just a little disclaimer, is not should not be considered legal advice. Please seek, seek the service of an attorney. Nothing I share with you tonight is legal advice. And, and uh, so that's that. Uh, I should probably give that disclaimer up front, huh? Uh, <laughs> um, Uh, I don't really get your question. Is it best to license products with the individual company or like the All-Star or DRTV? All-Star is an individual DRTV company. So maybe you could clarify a little bit, Ida. Um, you're, you're, you're almost always licensing with one individual company to answer your question. Um, Brandon, when signing an agreement, um, minimum guarantee improvement clauses kind of ran a bunch of words together there. When signing an agreement, minimum guarantee improvement clauses, good insurance plans, and sign with an LLC, is there any other clauses or items and things to look out for? Looks like you missed a few commas there, Brandon, but I'm just, I'm just joking. Just trying to keep it fun. Um, I'm trying to figure out what your question is. Okay, so it sounds like you're just listing off things that are important. Um, so you're saying, you know, make sure there's minimum guarantees. So they need to pay you a minimum amount every quarter. Um, if they don't, you can take it back. Yes. Um, you want to make sure you're covered under their product liability insurance. Yes. Um, you always want to, you don't have to do one now, but when you do a deal, always do it under an LLC, not under your individual name. In some states, it's as cheap as $20. California is $800 month yearly to file an LLC, limited liability company. Yes, always do an LLC. Are there any clauses or terms or things to look out for? Too many to go into right now. Um, there are definitely other things to um, look at. Um, that's that's like a whole thing in and of itself. But you got some of the most important there, Brandon. So um, yeah, there's too, too, many, too many to go into there. Uh, Sam said, do I have to be an InventRight student or is it possible to pay for your design studio and smart IP services separately? Yes. You can buy the one-time use of smart IP to follow your provisional 99 bucks on our site. Um, when you're a student, you get unlimited use of it while you're a student and there are design studio. You can buy that separately too. Just keep in mind when you use our design studio for your sell sheet or virtual prototype, there's no coach guiding you. The designer is just a designer. They're not a marketing person or a coach. They're just going to take whatever you tell them to do and make it pretty. So it's not the same as when you're a student. Um, so if you do crappy marketing and tell them to do it, they're just going to make it a pretty piece of junk. So you got to make sure you do good marketing if you send, if you do a la carte with their design studio. Um, let's see. Uh, Corian, part of the reason I developed the product I developed is because I want I want one. Okay, great. If I build 
if I build it and start using it in public, does that hurt my chances of licensing it? No, but it starts the public uh, one-year on-bar rule from ticking. So from, from the time you publicly disclose your invention, you have a year to get a provisional patent or a patent, or you lose all your patent rights. And to be honest with you, you, you shouldn't publicly disclose your invention ever these days without um, because of the American Vents Act, um, without filing a provisional patent first. But if you file a provisional patent, you just privately show it to companies, it doesn't start the one-year on-bar rule from ticking. So you could file another provisional. Now you wouldn't keep your original year from the original provisional, start a new one. So, but when you once you make that public disclosure, you've, you have one year to file a patent. And, you know, so, and I don't think it's necessary most of the time, there's no need to go public with it. Um, so people want to do it because they want to pat on the back, oh, that thing's great or what have you, but you know it's great, you know? And let the companies tell you if it's great. It doesn't matter a few people liking it on Facebook. That doesn't mean crap. It just means some people liked it on Facebook. Now, if you try to sell it and a thousand people bought it, okay, that might mean something, but now you're tooling up, you're manufacturing, you're selling it, you know? Um, and that's a lot of freaking work that you don't have to do. So, uh, okay. Uh, uh, let's see. This is Walid, I guess. Um, hi, Andrew. How I've how I find new ideas. Actually, I have a f have few product ideas, and I learned from you and Stephen. Licensing is a numbers game. So your question is how I find new ideas. Okay, yeah. My my favorite way of of coming up with new ideas is just to study a micro category. So find a category you're interested in. So let's say gardening trowels or pancake spatulas or um, car air fresheners or whatever it is you're kind of interested in. When, when you can, I'll be even more specific. I'll, I'll give this example at time. So let's say you're, you just like, you love barbecuing. It doesn't have to be something you love. I wouldn't make it something you don't like. It could be just something you're interested in. Like I talked to, um, uh, a gentleman today, actually the the 16-year-old the that won our contest with the one-on-one -on -one coaching, and he he has kitchen products. And I talked to him today, and um, I said, "Do you cook a lot?" And, no, I said, yeah I, "Yeah, I don't. I come up with kitchen stuff all day long. He's not a cook, but you can do that. You know, you observe people cooking. You kind of pretty obvious, you know, how to come up with ideas there. So um, so he could look at all the barbecue products, right? That's a little broad. But he could spend an hour um, looking at because he likes working on kitchen and cooking products. It's kind of outdoor cooking, but same thing. And you could spend an hour um, looking at all the barbecue products. And then or you could spend 30 minutes and then you're like, OK, let's get it down smaller so I can become an expert like in four hours, three, four hours. So you can't study all the barbecue products, be an expert, all barbecue products. That's overwhelming. But you can kind of study that broad category and go, oh, barbecue spatulas. Okay, everybody used barbecue spatulas. Okay, now I'm going to get more in depth and spend 30 minutes studying barbecue spatulas. You're like, mm, I'm feeling this. I like this. And then you spend the full three or four hours studying every freaking barbecue spatula on Google Images. That's my favorite, not regular Google, Google Images. Regular Google search, click on Images. It's that easy. Okay, Google Images, Amazon, Google Shopping, those are my three favorite. And you look at the price points, you look at the different benefits of each one. No invention. This is the ultimate way to invent. No invention. You just look at all this stuff and you're just gathering all that. And if something comes to you, write it down, but try not too hard to start inventing because you want to become an expert in this category by studying every freaking barbecue spatula out there for three or four hours, which seems like a little bit of investment. It's kind of fun. So when you're studying the marketplace and you already came up with that, it's stressful because people are worried about what they're going to find. But if you're just studying the category and no invention yet, it's fun. I, I bet 99% of you would have a blast doing that. So you look at all the barbecue spatulas. Oh, there's like six over here that do this. One's over here. You start to group them a little bit. Maybe you start, you got to write all this stuff down. You can't keep it in your head. Bookmark it in your browser. If you're fancy and you want to use Evernote, like a lot of our students, it's a free solution where you can clip certain things from the web. You can, it's called Evernote. You don't have to get fancy. You can just bookmark stuff in your browser though and put it all in a folder. Um, 
start to make those observations. And even if you're just bookmarking your browser, usually when you have a browser bookmark, there's a little section for notes or you can write something there. This, I, I really like this product because of this, maybe a variation on this or something like that. Or there seem to be five products like this. They're all the same. Maybe you do a variant because if there's five of something, you know they're selling well, five companies are selling it, and then you make a slight variation. Companies love it when you make slight variations on things that are already selling well. Well, Andrew, how would I know it's selling well? Well, there's eight freaking companies or five companies selling that product, pretty much the same thing. You know it's a popular one, so you make a slight variation on it. Or you make something completely different, you know? But so I love that, and most, most inventors do not invent that way. But that is the ultimate way to invent. Save you a lot of heart heartache down the line. You invent something. You've been thinking about it for a year. You didn't properly do your research, and you find the exact same freaking thing. You know, so annoying. If you do your research up front, it's not going to happen to you. And not only that, but you're inventing with the marketplace in mind. You're knowing what's out there, and then you're inventing with that in mind. You're much more likely to grab the attention of the marketing managers of these companies because they see You've identified these problems, gaps in the marketplace, products that are selling well, it's just slight improvements, whatever. So I love that question. Um, let's see, who do I give credit to that? Okay, that was for Waleed. Thank you, Waleed. Great question. Uh, Stefan, Stefan uh, hey Andrew, when, when is a good time to stop improving your idea? Uh, with sending a company improvement variations mid-negotiation hurt the licensing possibility? Um, well, I guess the question is, why would you do that? If they show, if you're mid-negotiation, why would you do that? You're going to get on the phone, talk with them about it. They're going to share with you their concerns if they're concerned about something. So changing the product based on their feedback happens all the freaking time. That's going to happen most of the time. That might shock most of you. Most of them are going to request some sort of little change. Um, so you have to be open to that. Absolutely. No, it wouldn't hurt you at all. But you're basing it up based on their feedback. And maybe you're showing a variation. Hey, I, I wanted to show this to you. See, yeah, fine. You got their initial interest. That's fine as well. Um, if, if you've got some valid variation that you wanted to show them, but you've got their interest. Now, if you show them 20 variations or even three and you overwhelm them, you might not even get the initial interest because they're like, well, which one is it? You know, so you kind of got to pick one quite often. But if you're in, they already have interest, it's usually not going to hurt anything. Um, so thank you, Stefan. Um, Sean, I have a concept for a new type of motorbike navigation. It, it is completely new and focuses on driver safety by eliminating distractions. I just don't know what to do next. I want to sell it. Sean, weren't you the one that said you were really limited financially, maybe a student? Um, I would not work on projects that complicated if that's the case. Uh-uh. Work on simpler projects. Don't try to change an industry. Um, that takes money. And most of the time, it's just not a smart thing to do. Um, so, do, 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 do. Uh, don't have your name. So, Sphoris's channel. Can you make... That's the username. Can you make a patent on a repurposed product from the 1950s? Yes. So something from the 1950s, whether it was patented or not patented, that's if it was patented and the patent ran out, it's public domain. Anybody can make that now. Maybe a lot of products are never patented. So it was something that was out there and you have an improvement. You can't protect the base product because that's public domain because that was done, what, 70 years ago. <laughs> okay. Um, but you can protect the improvement, something that hasn't been done. So you're protecting that piece. So people could do the base product from the 1950s, but they can't do it with your improvement. So you can patent it, but more importantly, you can market it. But ask yourself the question, is it marketable? That's the question you want to ask yourself. Uh, Melissa said, thank you, Andrew. Appreciate your feedback. Smiley face. You're welcome. Always like getting smiley faces. Um, Veronica, when should you consider filing a design patent in addition to a utility patent? Can you file a design patent yourself pretty easily? No, you cannot. Um, a utility patent, you can file, there is a, something called a provisional patent, which, is, uh, which would be the, the upgrade path from a provisional patent is to a utility patent. You can file a provisional patent for $75, and it covers the, the functionality of the product, the utility of the product. 
And you're claiming like, oh, it works like this. The hinge does this. And you're explaining it when you file a provisional or utility patent. So that is only $75 and you can upgrade it to your utility. But a, uh, a design patent is not $75. It's going to cost you about $1,500 to $2,500, which is cheaper than a, design, uh, a utility patent. But you, you cannot do it yourself. You have to have a professional patent drafter because it has to be done just a certain way. Provisional, layman can do it. It was meant for that. A uh, design patent is just a drawing and it has to be done to very specific specifications, dotted lines, not dotted lines, all that sort of thing. And that can only to be done by a professional uh, patent drafter. Okay. So it's expensive. Um, but sometimes it makes sense to do both. Uh, and, and, you know, a design patent and a utility, but I would really see in the most cases if there's interest first before you go filing, spending fifteen to twenty-five hundred dollars on a design patent. You know, spending seventy-five. So what some people will do, this is not legal advice. Um, they'll get a uh, get a utility patent, knowing there's probably no utility or functionality. Patent office doesn't restrict you there. Just spend seventy-five bucks, pretty much knowing. Maybe your attorney told you, I don't think this is patentable, but they can't say for sure. Nobody can for sure. Um, so they file a provisional patent, which gives you the ability to say patent pending, okay? And it gives you the ability to say patent pending for a whole year while you shop it around. So would I recommend everybody going out and filing design patents for all that money? Uh, no, because, you know, no, it's not 10 grand for utility patent, but it's still 1500 bucks. <coughs> you don't want to spend that kind of money. If there, But... Um, and you could always see if there's there's interest first and file a provisional patent. And then if they're like, oh, yeah, this is very interesting. Yeah, patents are important to us. Okay, then you could get them to give you the money to file the, the, the design patent. Um, but design patents are just the way something looks, not the way something functions. So a lot of times you can get around them very easily. And I have to give you a little bit of warning. Some patent attorneys, they, they see that it's not patentable. So they'll just go, well, I can get you a design patent because they want to get the money out of you one way or another, but they, and for some products, design patents offer you great protection for others. It's just the patent attorney trying to get any sort of money out of you before you leave. They don't want you to leave the door, their door without getting money out of you. So I see people file design patents on all sorts of stuff that should have never been filed. The vast majority of the time, a design patent will not apply or be a smart thing to do. Um, it's rare that it is. Um, but sometimes it is, so it's not always the case. Things are shades gray, not always black and white. Um, Michael says, hey, Andrew, thanks for all your time. Thank you. Appreciate it. Um, Hassan, hi, Andrew. While following the PPA, should I mention all the variations possible for the product? Different shapes, materials, dispositions, or just the idea in general? Absolutely. You can mention all that stuff. You know, you don't want to get crazy with it, but you can't you know, the way I would say is you don't want to do one, you don't want to cover a variation that's only half as good as your product. That's not a competition. But you might want to cover one that's 70, 80 percent good, just as good, but not the version you're pitching. Those are the ones you throw in there. So, um, you know, you don't have to cover every shape material. You, you can say, well, it could be out of this or this material, but not limited to these materials. So cover the ones that you think are obvious, but then don't limit yourself. Don't use limiting wording. Say, but not limited to these materials, not limited to these shapes, those sort of things. Um, again, that's not legal advice, just some things that I see people do. Um, uh, Dana, hi, she's an expert in her, she's a graduate, InventRight graduate actually. I have two products that can be used together or separate, same category. Should I make two cell sheets, separate cell sheets, or two products on one cell sheet? Okay, so she has two products. They can be used together or separate. Okay, should I make two cell sheets, separate cell sheets, or two products on one cell sheet? I say, yeah, I would just say make it clear that you could you can license both of them or you can just license one of them. And I think when you when you put it, you don't have to say that in your marketing piece in the sell sheet because then it's like you're making these exceptions in the marketing piece. You want the marketing piece to be an advertisement for them. Assume that they want both or one or the other. Okay. And then in the email, I would say, you know, I think that you could license both of these together or either of them individually. Put it in the email. Don't put it in the marketing piece because that's for their customer. Show them how their customer would see it, how they would market to their customer. 
So that's a good question, Dana. That's a, that's a good question. Um, thank you. Uh, Uh, Hassan, are the royalties percentages based on the final consumer product price or the wholesale distributor price? So it's whatever you negotiate, but 99% of the deals that we do, you, you, it's on the wholesale price. So it's the price the manufacturer you license to. So XYZ company sells it to Walmart. It's on that price because there's no way, especially now with Black Friday and all that, right? There's no way of tracking the actual price that it's being sold for. And it's really none of your licensees business. They sold it to Walmart. Walmart's sell whatever price they want. There's no way of tracking that. So it's always on the wholesale price. Okay. But it doesn't matter. It's all relative. I mean, occasionally we've had a few companies, DRTV companies where they sold directly to the public and it was on the retail price, but 99% of the time it's on the wholesale price. And so it's all relative, you know, and usually that's about half of whatever the retail is. Um, but it could be different but they can then sell it for more or less and you don't have to worry about it. And it's also easy to audit them if you need to, and you're going to have all those records. If you try to do it on the retail price, they don't have the records. What are you going to audit Walmart or target? That's not going to work. There's a, by the way, I use Walmart and target a lot. There's a lot more retailers than Walmart and target and please support other retailers besides those two giant mega corporations. I saw a story that during COVID, um, Target's business has increased 155% and Walmart's like 97% or something crazy like that. That's just, and it's a lot of these big retailers, they're benefiting tremendously from the, 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 the um, pandemic, but the little guys are getting hurt, you know? Um, so I don't know, just something I, I read over the weekend that I thought was interesting. Um, kind of sucks. Um, Let's see. Uh, delivery girl. Okay. Well, yeah. Uh, great. She she was one of the um, Serena. She was one of the winners. Serena. Uh, she won the Academy program. So congratulations, Serena. I talked to her earlier today. She's very pleasant, full of energy. Um, it's really great talking to you, Serena. And she says, how important is it to have? a virtual prototype when pitching to a company, can you rely on your own designs and drawings? Yeah, I mean, if you if you did um, made a prototype and it looks good in a picture, take a picture of it. It might fall apart when you touch it, but it's great to take a picture of and put in a cell sheet. Um, and if you're really good at doing drawings and things, but it's, it's rare, unless you're really, really talented, you kind of want to make it look like a real product. So I would advise you to get somebody to do a virtual prototype. It's pretty rare that I see somebody do a drawing that would be good enough for a sell sheet. Um, unless it's a novelty gift item. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for your knowledge and information. Yeah, it was great talking to you today, Serena. So you got your first session tomorrow with Matthew on Academy and then Thursday with Paul. So I hope you enjoy that. Um, so, you know, can you rely on your own designs and drawings? It depends on what they are, you know. Um, but don't send like, like I can barely draw a stick figure. I wouldn't ever send a drawing I ever did to anybody. Um, it, you know, it, it, you really should get a virtual prototype in my opinion of some kind. Um, you know, or you, so you could get somebody to Photoshop an existing product and change it a bit. Sometimes virtual prototypes just easier. Um, so let's see. And by the way, if, since you're an Academy student now, you get a discount from our design studio. So you might do that. You get a discount. I forget, it's, I think it's about half price. So that's cool. Um, and congratulations on winning for the Academy. Um, looks like we're at 501, guys. Um, so I'm going to call it a night. Uh, oh, well, last one, because it's an easy one. Colleen said, can you send a website in lieu of a sell sheet? Yes, you can, Colleen, but I don't find it to be effective because it's not accomplishing that six seconds. Like if the front of your website, if they only looked at it for six seconds and they would get it, yes. But if not, you need to redo your website. Creating websites is a pain in the butt. You know, I, it's so much easier to create a PDF that you just, you can just email to the company or have a graphic designer create a PDF. So yes, you can send them to your website, but if it doesn't, if there's a bunch of stuff on there, no, 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 don't do it. They don't have the time. Now, if you send a sell sheet and you attach it in email, 
boom, it's right there. They don't need to go to another site. You know, so I, I, I'm really not big on sending people to the website. I've seen cases where I'm like, oh, this video at the top of your site says it all. Um, but then they might not click on it. If it's just like, here's the YouTube video link, you know, unlisted YouTube link. Um, if it's a video or it's a sell sheet, it's right there. It's just more direct. So I'm not big on inventors having to create a whole website, nor definitely when you're licensing, you want to create that public exposure, you know? Um, you know, it's not necessary. Now, maybe you file a patent or something and it's fine, but anyway. Um, okay, so I'm gonna call it a night, everybody. Uh, it was great. I wanna remind you that, that coming up with, especially this time of year, I think you guys are thinking about family, yourself, what you really wanna do with your, your, your life. And if part of, if coming up with ideas is part of who you are, which it is almost all of you, um, you have to spend two to six hours a week doing this every week. And maybe the holiday is a good time to start, but make a routine, even if it's one hour a week, every week. Maybe it's just watching our YouTube videos for now. Maybe it's taking action, but I encourage you to do it as part of who you are. You're passionate about this. That's why even though I was speaking for about three and a half hours straight before this, I had I have no problem speaking for another hour doing this Q&A because I know you guys appreciate you know the time that I spent on here for the full hour. So I want to remind everybody to take care, keep inventing, and we'll catch up with you next time. See you guys. Bye.